who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom, it's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. Spinning our wheels once again. It's episode 488 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham, and this week, once again, going to be talking about the Wheel of Time, this time with executive producer and director Senna Homry, who joins me to talk about the penultimate episode coming up for season two and all the craziness that's happened in this season so far. <laughs> if you're a Wheel of Time fan, you've got a lot of things going on in your mind right now, so I'll try and ask her about a few of those things. The big story, though, this week, definitely... The end of the writer's strike. Now, I want to preface this by saying that I'm recording this on a Wednesday. So this is, you know, it's possible that things have changed, things like that. So as of Wednesday, September the 27th, okay, that we're going to be talking about the end of the writer's strike and some of the deals, some of the parts of the deal and what this means going forward and all the crazy stuff that's happening and the fact that, you know, pencils might be up. Pencils have been down for a while. Picket signs have been up and that could flip-flop here in the coming days, and that's very, very exciting news. So I'll talk about the impacts of that. Also, i got a few things to say about something that Martin Scorsese said about comic book culture and comic book movies. Yeah, I'm going to get a little heated in this one. It might make some people upset, but, you know, sometimes that happens. Also going to talk about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Mutant Mayhem. I finally get a chance to see that, and I want to give you my thoughts on that now that it's streaming on Paramount+. Plus. And also, Castlevania Nocturne going to give you an early review of that show that's going to be coming out here pretty soon, the Castlevania prequel that's coming to Netflix here this week. But first, got to talk to Senna Homry about The Wheel of Time, Season 2, and we'll do that next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, my name is Emily Andrus. I'm the showrunner and executive producer of Wine on Earth TV series, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Season 2 of The Wheel of Time is in full effect right now. As a matter of fact, the penultimate episode of Season 2 is going to be coming up on September the 29th on Prime Video. And I just happen to have one of the directors and executive producers of the show with me this week. It's Senna Homri. Senna, how you doing? I'm, I'm doing well. It's uh, nice and bright in Los Angeles, finally back. So it's been great. That's always good to hear. And season two of Wheel of Time is going fantastically so far. Fans are talking a whole lot. Do you feel like there's a story or a particular character that fans are talking about more than others? I think the fans are talking about everything. I mean, a lot of times with 
shows that are based on books, of course, the fans are going to talk about what was in the books, what we highlighted and all of that stuff. But I just feel like they are in for the ride. So a lot of the chatter I see is episode to episode basic, you know, um, it's funny because we previewed, um, 207 there's like that mini trailer after um the sixth episode and people are already coming up with these kind of conspiracy theories about some of the stuff some of the stuff they're correct about but some of the stuff they're so way off so it's kind of fun tracking what everybody is talking about <laughs> that's always very fun to hear i want you to talk about though really quickly your your vfx team and your wardrobe team this season because it feels like they're just done such a phenomenal job not that they didn't in the past I think they've really stepped it up this year. Absolutely. I feel like for all the heads of departments, whether it's costumes, visual effects, and production design, it is completely cohesive. The one thing that we did, um, Rafe Judkins, our showrunner, and I, is coming into this, and I came into this second season, is really creating an environment where all the departments talk to each other. And then as we're creating the images and the worlds, and even when I was directing some of the episodes, I would definitely say, this is the type of lighting tonality that I will be doing for the scene in prep. So let's make sure the costumes feel like this, or the production design is like that. And then in hand in hand with the visual effects, I find it extremely important to constantly communicate what you're doing on set. Um, I believe that we have to do as much as possible in camera and then VFX comes and enhances this versus the other way around. So it's kind of the mindset that I feel works for a show like this. No doubt. And it's worked out very, very well so far. I want you to talk about Moraine and her, you know not having her channeling abilities up to this point right now. How much is that really taking a toll on her or maybe is she learning a little bit more about herself without them? I think that Moraine's character this season is tremendous because we're finding out a lot about her backstory. We see her with her sister. We see the kind of relationship she has had in the past. And also, which we teased for um, the the penultimate episode is um, her relationship with Siwan. Um, Moraine and Siwan, how deep that goes, their love for each other. Um, we see Moraine vulnerable. And I think that Rosamund Pike does such a great job um, showing that characteristic because she was always like, remember in season one, she had the power. She was, you know, marching along. And then season two, we start with her without any power. And she has to find ways to make sure that her mission is complete and that the dark ones don't take over. So it's just so much for Moraine. And I feel like, especially in episode seven specifically, we get to really delve into her relationship with Siwan, Sophia Canedo, and their dynamic. It's been a really rough season for Egwene as well as we've seen in these last couple of episodes, especially. How much can you actually tease for us about what's left for her so far this season? Well, I feel like Egwene, as we can see, she's captured um, by the Sean Chen. She's a Damani. Um, basically, it's a slave. It's really brutal scenes. And then we find that she has to really dig deep within herself. The thing that we discover about Egwene is her true grit and how strong she is mentally. The other thing that we also find out is that her friends that she had in the two rivers are truly her friends and they're all conspiring to save her each, even though they're all in separate paths, they're trying to find each other as everybody's heading towards Falm. But 
they all have that mission of we've got to save our friend. And I feel like that um, amongst all of the, the fantasy and the dark ones and the dark friends, that that's like such a pure drive. Speaking of friends, how much are you here for the Matt and Rand dynamic? It just seems like they're ride or die bros at this point. I know the fans are loving it. Are you loving it as much as they are as well? I love the relationship between Rand and Matt because I find it truly the bro kind of we've been together since we were little kids. And even though Matt has lost his way and he feels, you know, Matt has that insecurity of like, I'm just not good enough. And you know what, because of that and because of my low self-esteem, I might as well be a bad person. Like who cares anyway? He has that kind of self annihilistic vibe to him. And, but Rand uplifts him. Meanwhile, Rand is like, he's got, he can, um, he can channel. So he's worried about going mad. So I feel like they both kind of complement each other. One feels like he's worthless and he might as well just give up and be a, you know, a bad person. The other one's like, I'm going to go crazy and become completely consumed with the dark it's lovely when we see them especially when Rand was like look the reason why I told everybody I died is because I wanted I didn't want to hurt anybody and of course Matt's like hey we're friends like no we've got your back and I think we love those type of themes especially in shows where the worlds are so different from ours but we always kind of our touchstone is touching upon themes that we um that we love and that are universal Santa, before I let you go, I know fans are already at a fever pitch as it is, but how would you describe the remaining episodes in this season? All right. So these last two episodes, which was a whirlwind to direct as well as to produce, um, everybody's in the episode. Some people make up, some people don't. So um, you don't know what's going to what's gonna happen. Um, it, there's so many intricate storytelling because remember, each the beginning of the season, everybody was on their own, but now they're all journeying towards FOM. Everybody's trying to help each other. People are trying to stop the Sean Chen, then the Forsaken Ones. And then we even have the White Cloaks who are like the religious, they believe that they're the good people and the Aes Sedai's are evil. So it's like this whole, it, it it's a lot going on. And then of course the finale, um, which was just huge, um, it, it's just gonna be filled with action filled with danger, super, super psychologically fulfilling, I think, for the fans, as well as some surprises. And we can't wait to find out what those surprises are. The last couple of episodes are coming up for season two of The Wheel of Time. The penultimate episode is Matt Frack coming up this Friday. That is September the 29th. And of course, you can still catch up with season two on Prime Video, now streaming of The Wheel of Time. In case you haven't gotten caught up already, you definitely have time. But I can't wait to see what they've got cooking up. And she's a big part of that. Senna Homry, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Thanks, James. And that's been the crazy thing about The Wheel of Time this season is that, I mean, there's always been a lot of characters to focus on, but they were so together in the first season. In the second season, the fact that they're split up, I think it actually made you want to focus more on their individual stories as opposed to their stories as a whole, which is also still important. But at the same time, I thought breaking things up like that really spotlighted the individual characters and, and you know who they were more so than they would have Otherwise, so I don't know if that was the intention or whatever, but it, if it was, it worked out brilliantly for this season of The Wheel of Time because I know that I've certainly been invested as well. And it's just so beautifully, it's so beautifully shot. It's so beautifully 
put together, you know, just the aesthetics of it all. You know, sometimes I get lost in that world a little bit, and then I pull myself back and remember, oh, that's right, you got to stick to the story. You got to keep your mind on the story as well. So it's been, you know, you could you could debate, you know, back and forth between, you know, the, the, well, the books did this and the show's doing this and all that stuff. But to me, it's just a fun ride. No matter how you look at it, Season 2 of The Wheel of Time is now streaming on Prime Video. And, and i got to tell you, I think I've been enjoying it more than I did for Season 1. Again, thanks to Senna Homry for joining me to talk about The Wheel of Time at Season 2. Up next, going to talk about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem. I know it's been out for a while, but hey, it just hit, Prime, it just hit Paramount+. Plus, So I'm going to talk about it now on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, this is Kevin Eastman, co-creator of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and you're listening to me on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. The heroes in the half show looking a whole lot different. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus, and I thought it would be a good time for me to kind of revisit this, because I feel like it's never too late to give thoughts on a movie at this point, and I finally got a chance to sit down and watch it. I tried to get in the theater. I really did. But it just, you know, it, it didn't work out for a number of reasons that I won't bore you with. So I will just dive into this thing. And just, I want to stick to the visuals here for a second. Because I really did love the animation style. I don't think it quite reached the level of Into the Spider-Verse. Because I think that's a really high bar to hit. But at the same time, really, really enjoyed the visuals of this thing. And I thought the character designs were, were unique and fun, especially for some of the characters that you don't get to see every day in Turtles, right? You know, like Mondo Gecko, even Bebop and Rocksteady, I thought they did a fantastic job. And Superfly, I thought they did a really good job with that character. And how they made... This was, you know, this actually felt like the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles as Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And I say that to say, you know, I've loved so many iterations of the Turtles... This one actually made them feel to me like young teenagers. And that just worked out so, so incredibly well for me, especially when you get to the part of the movie. And there might be some spoilers mixed in here. I just want to warn you about that real quick. Especially when you get to the part of the movie where, you know, they just want to be accepted. They just want to be a part of the outside world. They just want to, you know, live amongst the people, for lack of a better way of putting it. So, and you get to see that that genuine sadness in them many, many times throughout the movie, you know, before they run into April and they start, you know, that whole, you know, relationship with her and, and trying to figure out what's going on with Superfly and what they're willing to do to actually try and gain that acceptance. And then you get to the point where you see them grow up kind of as the movie goes on when they realize, you know, hey, this might not work out the way that we wanted it to or the way that we thought it would. So I thought that that was a really cool way to really let those characters evolve and, and let and let it seem like they were actually young teenagers. And that's partially, you know, due to Micah Abbey, who played Donatello, Shimon Brown Jr., who was the voice of Michelangelo, Nicholas Cantu, who was Leonardo, and Brady Noom, who was Raph. And the way that their chemistry worked with each other as well. And, you know, Leo kind of being, you know, kind of being the rat a little bit, but kind of being, the you know, pun, no pun intended. Being the leader where he always feels like he has to, you know, be the compulsive truth teller to dad because, you know, he feels like that's his role in the group and how, you know, that. but they still, at, at the end of the day, they always stuck together as brothers. So I just thought that that was a really neat way that they were able to do that and bring that out a little bit, especially making them feel like teenagers again, I thought was something that maybe has gone missing in other iterations 
of Ninja Turtles recently, especially since you, they always had a certain teenage persona to them, but seemed more grown up. And I like the fact that we aged them down a little bit here, made them more younger teenagers, and that just really worked for me. What they did with Splinter, I thought Splinter was the most unique character of all of them. Splinter was the biggest departure for me in this entire movie than any other character. You know, him being paranoid and and much more of a comic relief. And again, now you have to keep in mind this was a movie that was more geared towards kids. And I always kept that in mind as I was watching this thing. So changing Splinter's character up to be a little less serious and be a little bit more of the comic relief, I didn't hate it. Did, did my traditional nature of being a Turtles fan raise up my flag and be like, I don't like this, I don't like this? At times it did. But then I, you know, once you remember the audience for this movie, right, and you start to think, oh, you know, doing that isn't the end of the world. And you still got, you know, the nurturing dad, Splinter. You still got the guy that just, you know, really, really cared about his kids at the end of the day, right? And the part of it, too, is he wanted to be accepted. Acceptance was a big, 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 big theme in this movie, for sure. And he was talking about how he wanted to be accepted, and he wanted to bring them into the outside world. When he tried, he was very much rejected for that. And that was Superfly's argument, too. And by the way, you know, shout out to freaking uh, Ice Cube for doing an amazing job of Superfly. Because, again, he wanted acceptance as well. But at the same time, he was willing to, you know, kill a whole bunch of people and transform a whole bunch of people to do it. And that just wasn't the way that you, you that's not the way you want to do things. But that's the other thing that I loved is that he kind of brought, you know, a lot of the characters, you know, like I said, Mondo Gecko, Bebop, Rocksteady, things like that. It kind of changed things up is that, you know, he kind of took them in as family, the way that Splinter took in the Turtles. And, you know, they just took a way more radical approach to how they wanted to be accepted by society, but I thought it was interesting the parallels that they had between Superfly and Splinter, and it almost realized, it made Splinter realize, you know, hey, maybe I'm going about this wrong, maybe I'm being a little bit more overprotective and things of that nature when it comes to my boys, and, you know, you might need to, you know, let them lead, let them lead their life a little bit more than he was, and he was keeping them very sheltered. So I thought that that was a very interesting parallel that they drew on this thing, and I thought that it was interesting how it almost kind of drew the turtles in too, right? Because what, you know, Superfly, it seemed like, you know, he's like, oh, you know, we're, we're, we're cousins, we're, we're nephews, we're brothers, things like that. And almost draws the turtles in a little bit because it seems like, okay, we all want the same thing. And, and it, they it almost kind of made the turtles forget, you know, that they were kind of there to stop him from, you know, destroying humanity and things like that and destroying the city. So I thought that that was an interesting way to maybe try to, you know, you know, take advantage of that youth a little bit from the Turtles and try and influence them over to his side. And, and not even in a manipulative way, but, you know, seeing how, you know, influenced younger people can be. Again, making them younger teenagers allowed them to use this story point and that, you know, they could be maybe a little bit more easily influenced. Now, it, there was never really any real danger, I don't think, of them ever joining his side but still, it they made it made it seem like a cool thing, right? So watching, you know, the turtles hang out with so many villains that we've seen them fight over the years, you know, like bowl together and you know just have fun together was kind of weird at first. But the way that they executed the story made it make such sense and such perfect sense that you know I kind of you know almost forgot about that for a minute. So in this in the encapsulation of the story that they were trying to tell. I thought it was a brilliant job done by them. And a lot of the talk of this movie, too, 
was about April. And for stupid reasons, too, by the way. And you can like or not like the character of April in this movie based on the merit of the character. But I don't want to hear anything about the character's appearance. I just I don't want to hear any of that stuff. All right? I don't, I'm not here for that. I've said that before. I don't want to talk about race, skin color, any of that stuff. I just want to talk about the presentation of the character. Because, again, a very big departure for the April character. I want to make that very clear. Character. This is a character that was portrayed very differently than she has been in previous iterations. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with that because they aged her down significantly as well. Remember, April's much older than the Turtles. I say much. I think that's probably overstating it a bit, but she's certainly older than the Turtles. What they did was they put her at or near the same age level as the Turtles in this movie. Again, young inexperienced, the whole thing about her throwing up reading the morning announcements when she was doing the school when she was doing the school news, I thought was pretty funny. But again, they put her on their level for a reason. You know, because again, maybe it made her them her easy to accept that. But she also kind of keeps she's the one that kind of keeps it real for them, right? She's the first one to tell them, hey, this might not work out the way you think or the way you want it to. Just keep that in mind, you know, when you're doing what you're doing, make sure you're doing it all for the right reasons. So I think that while, you know, the April character I felt like could have been, I almost kind of wished they, they went the other way with it and stuck the more traditional route where making, you know, making her a little bit older and, and, and having and, and having that part of the story play out a little bit differently. I, I would like to kind of, they still use the news angle, you know, for, you know, in, in the, in the final moments of the movie, they still, still use that as a, as a sticking point for the, for the story which I thought was smart, and directors Jeff Rowe and Kyle, Kyler Spears probably deserve a lot of credit for that, and also the writers, which would, you know, Seth Rogen and Goldberg and company deserve credit for that as well to be able to throw that in there. But at the end of the day, this was a fun vibe type of movie, especially if you had younger kids, and this is a way to kind of gateway them into the Turtles fandom, and then you, you know, slowly introduce them to other things about it. They just, they dialed up wanting to focus on the fun, and they were unapologetic about it. I think that was one of the things that worked in this movie. Is it my favorite Turtles thing ever? No, of course it's not because of, I'm of a different generation. And in and, and my mind, it's always going to be on the original animated series and those original live-action movies, at least the first couple. You know, that's where my mind's going to go. But I thought the way that they introduced some, you know, a ton of fun into this thing, the way that they used music as a storytelling device in this movie as well, I thought was really smart. So I think that as far as being able to get kids to love Turtles again, I thought this was a huge step forward. So Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem I thought was a big success. I really hope they kind of make more of these movies inside this universe to kind of see how the story grows and evolves over time because I think that this could really have a long-standing effect on future Turtle stories for sure. That's going to do it for my spoiler-filled review, I mean ish review, of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem. Up next, going to talk about Castlevania Nocturne, the series that's going to be coming to Netflix, the Castlevania preview. I'll do that next. I'm James Witham, and this is the Dan and Nerdy Podcast. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? 
Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. During Women's History Month, come explore what feminism means to you with nonfiction storytelling podcast, Thread the Needle. I'm your host, Donna Schill. I'll use my background in journalism to dive into topics that matter to women today. Listen to Thread the Needle wherever you get your podcasts. This is Julie Nathanson from Far Cry 5, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Night Creatures and Revolution. It is the my spoiler-free review of Castlevania Nocturne, which is actually a sequel series. It takes, it takes place 300 years after the events of the original Castlevania series that was on Netflix. It actually takes place in 1792, which you know is probably the height of the French Revolution. And that's kind of mixed in also with the fact that we've got Richter Belmont. And the one thing I, one of the things I love about this is that Richter Belmont's only 19. He's, he's a very, very young character. And sometimes that shows through. Sometimes you can't really tell. It's, it's just interesting how he approaches things. And there's something that happens in the first episode and it kind of helps you understand who Richter is and or, or what he's carrying with him. And again, I don't want to do any spoilers here, but it, it's pretty obvious why he is the way he is based on what happens to him early on in his life and his in his childhood. So very, very interesting stuff. And then, of course, he's he's sought out to kind of help defeat these this vampire messiah who has aligned himself with, or the aristocracy of France has aligned themselves with this with this vampire messiah. And it's interesting how the mix of vampires in high society I thought was really interesting because you think of a character like, like Alucard from the other Castlevania series, and, you know, there was a high society air to him as well, even though, you know, he had a bit of an edge to him. So it's, it's not like, I'm not saying he was a high society guy, but I'm, what I'm saying is that that's the presentation, right? Even with... with with Dracula, Vlad Tepes, you you saw this aristocracy air to him. So bringing this, bringing these vampires into French high society, kind of just you know worked hand in hand. But then there's also some f- familiar beats as well with night creatures and things of that nature. You've also got Annette, who you see teaming up with with Richter Belmont and things like that, and they're trying to you know of course figure out what's going on and and stop these. Vampires. So it's not, you know, we're not completely reinventing the wheel here, but we're definitely putting things in a different setting 
We're definitely giving a, a different vibe. There is a huge difference to me, character-wise, between Richter Belmont and Trevor Belmont. If you want to compare the two series, and in your head you're probably going to a little bit. So there's a very big difference between the two of them. Now, still, you know, they're still descendants of the same family and everything like that. So they're, they're you know, you, you sort of subtly see some similarities. And obviously fighting styles is, is part of that as well. But they're, they're just the way the characters approach and carry themselves, especially early on when we first meet them, is very, very different. And I think that that's pretty cool, the way they were able to pull that off. But again, this is one of those things where if you were a Castlevania fan before anyway, you're going to love the hell out of this show because it's going to look, it's going to feel exactly like the Castlevania series that you remembered. It, it, but but with a different story and very different characters as well. So it's 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 the same, but also very different. But there's still that crispness, and I mean just crispness, to the action scenes in this thing. The, the animation is next level off the page. Hello, Powerhouse Animation Studios. Welcome back with this amazing series. So um, so wonderfully done by them. Got a shout out to, to Project 51 Productions as well, the production company on this, who did a great job. And then you can also tell that you've got guys like Kevin Coldy back to do this thing. Clive Bradley comes in as the creator on this. The directors, Sam and Adam Dietz, who are part of the original Castlevania series. So you bring back that familiarity, but you also bring in somebody like a Clive Bradley to shake things up a little bit for this particular show and, and, and writing this thing as well. The voice cast is is incredible that they do a very very good job and i just like the way that they weave this story in the first season now there's gonna be some stuff and i'm it's i absolutely cannot talk about any of this stuff there's gonna be some shocking moments in here for you a couple of things you're not going to expect as a matter of fact there's one particular character that shows up in this show that you're not going to expect and that's a good thing by the way this one's going to catch you by surprise i'm not going to give you any hints Anything like that, but I'm gonna tell you right now that I was a little bit surprised to see this character too. You know, pleasantly surprised, of course, but surprised nonetheless. I also love how we have different night creatures in this thing too, and and obviously we've gotten different night creatures throughout the Castlevania series. So I'm not, I'm, it's not like I'm acting like you know they completely changed things for this one. They mean they've changed some stuff, and as a matter of fact, they. <laughs> How these night creatures come about is a very interesting piece of the puzzle as well. And again, I don't want to, I'm not trying to spoil anything for anybody that hasn't seen it. So I'm trying to give you a general overview of the series as much as I can. But I, I love the, there, there are some surprising beats in this that I think might catch you off guard. There, there's one or two that I think you'll probably figure out. But there, there are, were some legitimate surprises in this thing. And that's, you know, that shouldn't be shocking, right? Because it's it's Castlevania. We've been surprised before. But there were a couple in here that were that were pretty impressive that I was, I'm kind of surprised they were able to pull it off without me figuring it out because I can usually figure this stuff out. But they did a great job of hiding these things. One of them was in plain sight, and I was kicking myself for it. But they just, again, this, this is, if you were worried at all, that they were going to lose their edge and this wasn't going to feel like Castlevania anymore or things were going to be different because, of the, you know, the timelines changed. It's not different if you loved it already. I will say that. As far, it's gonna, the vibe is going to be there, but it's, a, it's also a very different story, too. You, there'll be some familiar beats from time to time, 
but it's still a it's still a very different story. These characters are vastly different. This is not Trevor and Sypha, the not not this time. Okay, that it's gonna be it's gonna be a little bit different. I know that you're thinking, oh well, you've got you got a male character paired with a female character, and they're gonna go on this quest. Okay, I get it. I get why you would think that it's similar. Not this time. This is this is a different vibe. Trust me on this. And these are very different characters. And, and the way that Richter's character evolves throughout this season, I think is really neat as well. And, and when you're young, when you've got a young character like that, you kind of expect that to happen, don't you? You kind of expect certain changes to happen in the character as far as their personalities and things go and, and how they carry themselves and, and all that stuff. So, yeah, Castlevania Nocturne. I was looking forward to it when it was first announced. Did not disappoint at all. Can't wait to hear your thoughts on it because if you loved Castlevania, I think you are really going to love this thing. Everything you want is right there in a very different setting, and I think it's a, it was a really cool choice by the creative team, so well done by them as well. That's going to do it for my review of Castlevania Nocturne, which is now streaming on Netflix. Up next, the writer's strike is officially over. Let's talk about that and much more nerd news up next. I'm James Witham, and this is the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, this is writer Mark Miller, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. When you fight for your right to write, and it pays off, it's time for nerd news, and I am so excited to be able to say that the Writers Guild of America and the American Motion Picture and Producers, whatever the hell the acronym means, okay, they've reached a tentative agreement on a deal to end the Writers Guild strike after almost 200 days. Can you believe it was almost 200 days that they were on strike? And they are proclaiming, saying the writers that they won. And it seems like, yeah, that's going to be hard to argue with. So I'm not going to go through the whole deal. You you can read up more on it. The writers would be able to tell you way better than I would. We'd be here for a while if I got to tell you all the amazing things that they got. But it looks like a major increase in streaming-based residuals was a major sticking point. They got that. The strong limitations on AI, AI can't write, is a lot of the stuff that I've been seeing as well. As you go, you got minimum writer's room staffing, and that's really going to cut down on overworking folks. So I'm really excited that they got that. Also, Adam Conover reported this. I don't want to point this out. Guaranteed compensation and 13-week minimums for comedy-slash-variety writers in streaming. So there's a lot of stuff here. That that is a part of this deal, and there's some you know some scripting fees that are involved as well for staff writers, a whole bunch of different stuff. But just suffice to say, as far as the, I'm not saying I would I, I supported one strike more than the other. I supported them both, and I, I I hope everybody gets a fair deal. But these writers, writers don't get paid nearly as much as most actors do. Well, I should say some actors do. I don't want to say most. Then I won't go. I don't want to go down that road. But but let's just suffice it to say that most writers. Don't get paid to the same level that actors do. And and everybody works hard. I don't think it gets said enough how hard these writers work and how just incredible they are at their job and how so much this has been a long time coming because there was so much... There was, it seemed like there were so many standards to, you know, overwork but underpay writers. And now it seems like, at least for now... That's coming to an end. And I'm just so happy for them that they found the deal that they wanted. And quite frankly, I mean, again, remember this? You remember how ugly this guy talking about, you know, possibly letting the writers ride this out until they started losing their houses and all of these other things and, you know, health benefits and all kinds of other stuff. 
And it got really, really ugly. And for a while, I wasn't sure how long this thing was going to go on. But now, of course, you already push up the, to the deadline of the fall TV season coming up. And, you know, if you don't start writing by October, that's going to eliminate or limit the fall TV season. So the sense of urgency was there for the studios and the and the writers held firm to their resolve. And, and that is one of the things that I think is, if history will show us one thing in this strike, if you look back at it, it is the resolve and the togetherness and the camaraderie that this group had with one another. Because, I mean, how many times have we seen in the past, especially when it comes to sports, when you see the rank and file just sort of buckle because, you know, it's go time and, you know, checks are going to start getting missed and things like that. And once it gets down to dollars and cents, then, you know, you see the, you see the side of the striking workers decide they need to come back and make a deal. That's not what happened here at all. Not only did, now remember, it was the studios that walked away from the table weeks ago. It wasn't the writers. And they just kept picketing. They kept firm in their beliefs. They, they knew what they wanted and they weren't willing to settle for anything less. Now, is there a bit of give and, you know, give and take here? Of course there is. And the writers seem like they overwhelmingly won in this deal. But I'm sure in any negotiation of any kind, there's always some sort of give and take. A little bit, right? And sometimes it's just tweaking a number here and there that is usually the difference here. But the fact that they stuck to what they believed in and stuck with each other, right? And and there was so much. And I'm not gonna I'm not gonna point fingers or anything, but you know there was there were plenty of stories that came out that you know were certainly aimed at trying to break the resolve of the writers and things that were said and trying to you know create dissension in the ranks, and that just did not happen. They stuck with each other. They stuck it out. And now long-term, not just for this group of writers, but for future writers, just a much better deal, a much better, just, not just, not cost of living isn't the, isn't the word I'm looking for here, but just such a better, you know, lifestyle. And just in general now that, you know, there's so much of a huge weight or weights, you could even say plural, lifted off the, of their shoulders because of this deal. And now, at least for the next few years anyway, you can rest easy and know that you're getting something that you probably have deserved for years and years now. And you know what this also does? And, and I'm not a writer, okay? I never claimed to be a writer. I've, I've only talked to many amazing writers over my days. I'm just going to say this. As somebody who generally, you know, if you're, if you're talking about just jobs in general, if you have any kind of job, and you have this constant stressor on your mind, whether it be money, you know, somebody you work with, whatever. Like, just imagine the stressors that were involved in these writers' lives from day to day. And that has to affect your job. And I'm not saying at all that it affected anyone's job in their work in writing. I'm just saying from my perspective, I know that there's times when I have stressors in my life when it comes to my work that, you know, you know my work would be better if I, if I didn't have those stressors because that's something that's always in the back of your mind that you're thinking about. You remove these things from the backs of the minds of these writers, and now they don't have to worry about X, Y, and Z that they've now received in this deal. It's more focus that they can have on their work. And that just means better writing, better television, better movies, better in whatever. Just go down the list. Everything's just going to be so much better now that these stressors are removed from the picture. And, and just the fact that especially the writers from staffing thing, I think was a huge part of this deal because that means you're not overworking a small group 
of writers to to put together 23 24 episodes of television or even you know for for one season it's just it's it's so great that they were able to do this and bravo to everybody for sticking to their guns here the screen actors guild the sag after folks have have congratulated them you know now it's time for them those two parties to get to work sag after in the studios to get their deal done and the writers are still supporting sag after obviously because you know they they were in solidarity together and it was an amazing thing to see and hopefully we get a deal with sag after here pretty soon but getting the writers back to work is hugely hugely important because now so many things can get back on the table all of these things that were shelved weren't shelved just because of the writer's strike it was i mean excuse me the actor strike it was the writer's strike that was keeping a lot of things on the shelf and things because things couldn't be written, things couldn't be worked on at all. Pencils were down, keyboards were closed, things like that. So now work can be done on projects that you can actually move forward with stuff that's in, you know, pre-production or that that's in the even in the infancy stages of just getting scripts done and things like that. Superman Legacy jumps to mind automatically, you know, getting the finishing touches done on that script for DC Studios and just moving things forward. And then once you get the actors back to work, then things can start filming again. Cameras can start rolling and things of that nature. So this is this is a historic deal for sure. And if you want to dive into the details, there's any number of places you can do that with any number of writers, especially on social media. You can go find the details there. You can also get it on the Writers Guild of America website. They have a breakdown of some of the aspects of the deal as well. And But just bravo to them for some amazing, amazing work and inspirational work. And I hope that this is something that we remember for years to come. Now I'm going to get on my soapbox a little bit because this upset me. Martin Scorsese opened his mouth again about comic book movies. And he actually said, (laughs) we've got to save cinema. We've got to support more filmmakers like Christopher Nolan. You know, the guy that did the the Dark Knight trilogy. But that's neither here nor there. So basically what Martin Scorsese, this is the part that really got to me, okay? And I understand that he says that, you know, comic book movies aren't cinema. That's not the part that upsets me, honestly. It's really not. It's when he said, and I believe this was an interview with Variety. Correct me if I'm wrong here. I was with GQ, I'm sorry. So in this interview with GQ, he actually says that we have to fight back against comic book movie culture. Okay, here's my problem with that. And now, I'm, I'm going to preface this by saying, is Martin Scorsese a brilliant filmmaker? Yes, he is. Have I enjoyed many of his movies over the years? Yes, I have. And I, I'm not going to stop enjoying the kinds of movies that he made. But this is also a guy that made a pretty good living in genre movies with these organized crime movies and things like that. And comic book movies are genre movies, whether you like it or not. Okay, so don't act like you didn't make part of your living in a genre of movies, okay? I also think he kind of sounds like a bitter old man because he knows that the movies that he's making, while, you know, maybe more highbrow and more, quote-unquote, as he says, cinema, they're not going to make a billion dollars, probably ever, anymore. And part of that is how expensive movies are to go to nowadays and blah, 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 blah. You go down the list, right? The thing that upsets me is, is when he says we have to fight back, Stay the fuck in your own lane, okay? And I don't say stuff like that on this show very often, but I'm going to say it now. Cinema should be able to exist in its own genres, okay? 
You should be able to make the movies you want to make and be happy with it and let people go see what they want to go see and not want to go see. What I'm saying by that, what I'm saying by that is if you want to go see if you're a fan, fan of comedies, even low, like lowbrow comedies, things like that, if that's your jam, go see it. If comic book movies are your jam, go see it. If you're looking for a more cultural, cultured and more meaningful film experience with stuff like Martin Scorsese is talking about here, by all means, go see it. You know what you don't hear comic book movie directors saying? We need to save cinema by fighting back against highbrow movies like more from me, made by people like Martin Scorsese. You know why? Because you stay in your lane, right? You know who your audience is. You know who you're catering to. And those are the people that are going to want to go see your movies. So you cater to them and get to them to the movies. Or not. doesn't always work out that way, right? The fight back thing really bothers me. Because it's almost like, you know, hey, if we don't fight back against this, our movies are going to suffer. You know what? Those movies that you hate so much, Mr. Scorsese, are footing the bill for a lot of these studios right now and allowing you to still get budgets for your movies to be made as well. Maybe you should think about that for a second. And I know that people are so damn scared to criticize a guy that's just so brilliant like Martin Scorsese. Maybe Martin Scorsese should keep his mouth shut and just make movies, okay? That's your job is to make movies. You want to control what the audiences do clearly, okay? And I know that you're, you're just so worried about guys like Christopher Nolan and yourself because of these, you know, these comic book movies are just ruining it for you. And, you know, I would say make better movies. You're making good movies. There's no question about that. But at the same time, to say that we have to destroy something that so many people love, so, you're, so you think if you destroy comic book movie culture, these people that are watching comic book movies are just going to flock to your movies and all of a sudden make them more prominent? That's not how it's going to work, okay? That's 100% not how it's going to work. I'm sorry. So if you think that ridding the cinematic world of comic book movie culture is going to make things any better, then you are kidding yourself to a level that I can't even believe. For somebody so smart as Martin Scorsese is, to say something like that just blows my mind. I just cannot believe, cannot believe that he would do that. I can't, saying that they have to fight back stronger on a grassroots level just blows my mind. Just blows my mind. I, I, you know, he talks about reinventing. You can do that in any type of movie. Okay? You can he wants to save cinema. I get it. Make your movies and people will go see them or they don't. And he wants to say it's manufactured content. To a degree, he's he's not wrong. The, again, the thing that drives me crazy, and he says it's almost like AI making a film. Now, the CG isn't always great. I'll agree with him on that. But you're insulting people that are writing, directing, what have you, these comic book movies. Some of which are very good. Some of which are quite cinematic in their own way. Some of which have more depth of storytelling than others, if you, especially if you want to see it. Okay? So just for him to say that we need to save cinema by fighting back against these movies, just that is such a bitter old man answer, and it drives me crazy. And I cannot believe that you were, he is so dug in 
on this. So remember that. Remember that. The next time Martin Scorsese makes a movie, remember that. I'm not saying I'm not the idiot that's going to say boycott this, that, and the other thing. I'm not even saying I'm not interested in seeing Killers of the Flower Moon because it looks like a good movie. I know that he likes to make. By the way, if if Martin Scorsese could cast anyone else but Leonardo DiCaprio in a movie and be a little bit more inventive in that regard, that would be great. Just throwing that out there as well from the guy that says that we need to reinvent cinema to fight back against comic book movies. Just want to throw that out there too. Right, and if anybody's got a problem with what I've said about Martin Scorsese, again, it's not that I, I think he's making bad movies or I think he's a moron. I think it's what he's saying is very short-sighted for somebody that's supposed to be so intelligent and brilliant. And I think that if you're a director, writer, whatever, of a comic book movie, you should be friggin' insulted by what this guy just said about your work because he's criticizing your work and thinks it needs to be wiped from the face of the earth. Just throw that out there and just think about it from that perspective. Another thing that kind of pisses me off that happened this week is that Prime Video is going to start adding ads into their streaming stuff. And again, I'm not going to dig into all the gory details here, but you're going to need to pay another $2.99 a month if you want the ads not to happen. And the, the I guess, you know, oh, well, the poor Jeff Bezos or whoever the hell runs Amazon now, yeah, they're, they're running out of money, man. They're, they're just hurting. They're real hard up. For money, maybe you don't make seventy five hundred shows and movies, you know. Maybe and then that's just in one month. It seems like you're making all this new stuff. Some of which is very good. Some of which, yeah, not so much. So, and again, I'm not trying to take any money out of anybody's pockets here, but you you can always tell when something comes out and you're like, I don't know that that needed to be made, you know. So so they're they're doing that kind of stuff, and they're I'm sure that part of it's going to be, oh, this is. The impacts of the writer's strike and the actor's strike. and You never needed more money to pay the actors, writers, what have you. You always had the money. All of you. Not just Amazon. All of you. You always had the money. You just wanted to stick it in your pocket instead of giving it to people that are doing 90% of the work. Okay? So let's not act like you've got to pass this on to the consumer. And it's, I know. I get it. Maybe two ninety nine seems like nothing in the grand scheme of things. But didn't they just raise prices to begin with? Like a month or two ago, they just raised the price for Prime in general. And pretty much every streamer has raised their prices. This is not exclusive to Prime Video, but now they're putting ads in. So this is why I'm talking about this particular thing. And and it says ads. We don't know how many ads that is. Is it is it a couple ads? Is it going to be like a full t- full TV network TV stop set in in you know shortening the length? Could shorten the length of episodes too. Keep that in mind. So to me, this is just, this is a greedy play, man. This is greedy. And I say this as somebody who has zero intention on canceling my Prime membership, not just because of Prime Video, but because, you know, I use it for other stuff, obviously, and I think that most of us do. But this is just greed personified to me that you're going to throw ads in there now and try and fleece another two ninety nine a month out of people. And I think this is just going to be the standard, right? now. And how's that cord cutting working out for you now? I tried to warn people about the whole cord cutting thing and that it was going to be no cheaper than than just sticking with cable. And I, it drives me crazy to stick with cable too. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, look at all the stuff that you that you want to have and you do the math and it's no cheaper now. No cheaper at all. So it, it frustrates me. I'm not I'm not paying the extra two ninety nine. at least not for now. I'm going to st- I'm going to stick with the ads and see what happens. It's not like they weren't throwing 
you know, casual promos in front of most of their episodes anyway. So it's almost going to feel like, you know, not that bad of a transition at this point. And I pay for certain services without ads. I'm not going to tell you which ones, but I pay for certain things and cut out the ads. But that might have to change because it's just getting expensive. You know, it's just getting real expensive. I'm not going to get on my soapbox here about, you know, the state of the economy or anything like that. But just some frustrating stuff when you start to see more and more stuff like this. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. And well, again, I want to thank Senna, Senna Homry for joining me to talk about the Wheel of Time Season 2. They've got the penultimate episode of Season 2 coming up, and it's just been a wild and wacky season, so I'm glad I got a chance to talk to her about that. Also, make sure you go on our website, downandnerdypodcast.com, if you want to catch up with the show. And you know you can actually listen to shows on the website, and I know a lot of you like to do that. You can also subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Also, if you're subscribed on Google Podcasts, that's going away, so make sure you subscribe on Spotify, or you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It'll continue to be available on the website. You can also get us on the Realm app as well. You can also follow along on social media at Down and Nerdy 757 on Twitter and Instagram, and at Down and Nerdy on Facebook, at Down and Nerdy Pod on TikTok. I really need to do better with my TikToks. I need to start getting back and doing those again. And But Remember one thing, you never have to apologize for being a nerd. So let your fan flag fly. Be good to your fellow nerds. What does feminism mean to you? During Women's History Month, come explore feminism and how it's playing out in real life with season two of Thread the Needle, a monthly podcast. I'm your host, Donna Schill. I use my background in journalism and draw on women's life experiences to add to the conversation on topics that matter to fellow feminists like you. Now in its second season, listen to new episodes each month as we explore finding yourself through divorce, battling call-out culture, questioning our ideas about masculinity, and discovering why girls' confidence plummets in their preteens. Guests include Stephanie Kuntz, historian and author of Marriage, a History, April White, author of Divorce Colony, and Loretta Ross, professor on white supremacy and call-out culture at Smith College. Listen to Thread the Needle on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.